0: MS W Media. Tail the beans, Daily beans, Daily
1: beans, Daily the beans, Tail
0: Hello. And welcome to The Daily Beans for Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. Today, a new filing in the Dominion defamation case reveals that Rupert Murdoch knew the election fraud claims were lies. The Department of Justice is set to brief the Gang of Eight in Congress about the risk posed by classified documents in the Trump, Pence, and Biden cases. The Supreme Court is going to weigh student debt cancellation. Fannie Willis has impaneled a regular grand jury to consider indictments in the 2020 election interference investigation. And Elon Musk lays off more Twitter employees. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody, it's AG and uh, holy forking shirt balls. Uh, And yes, I've been watching The Good Place. This Dominion filing, the latest filing in the Fox News Dominion $1.6 billion defamation case is explosive. It uh, goes over everything, like there's depositions, there's additional evidence and messages and emails that are presented here. And it's pretty devastating. I'd be very interested to hear from you as well as your good news. But I'd be interested to hear if any of you are having discussions with any family members or friends who are Fox News watchers. Some of us have those folks in our lives. What they have to say about the revelation that there is now proof that Fox News lied to them about election fraud, that there wasn't any with these revelations. Now uh, I will be going over the, I'm going to report a little bit on this here at the beans today about this filing, but we're going to be going over it in detail on tomorrow's cleanup on aisle 45, me and Pete Strzok, who's the new co-host of cleanup on Isle 45. That's a free podcast, wherever you get your pods, check it out, cleanup on aisle 45. We're going to be going over a lot of the quotes from the depositions from folks like Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch and uh, Ms. Scott and Paul Ryan, who sits on the board, that Paul Ryan of the parent company. So Tune in to Clean Up on all 45 tomorrow. We'll give you all that. Later in the show today, I'm going to talk to our friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. I miss my buddy, Glenn Kirshner. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are going on with the DOJ and Fonny Willis. And we're also going to talk about his new series, his new documentary series coming out on Peacock, debuting on March 7th. You don't want to miss that discussion. We have a lot of news to get to today. So let's hit the hot notes. Awesome. Hot notes. Hot notes. First up from Peters and Robertson at The New York Times, Rupert Murdoch, chairman of the conservative media empire that owns Fox News, acknowledged in a deposition that several hosts for his networks promoted the false narrative that the election in 2020 was stolen from Donald Trump. That's according to court documents released Monday. Quote, they endorsed. That's what Murdoch said under oath in response to direct questions about the hosts Sean Hannity, Janine Pirro, Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo in a legal filing by Dominion Voting Systems. And uh, he went on to say, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight, unquote. Mr. Murdoch's remarks, which he made last month as part of the $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox by Dominion, added to the evidence that Dominion has accumulated in an attempt to prove its central allegation. The people running the country's most popular news network knew Trump's claims of voter fraud during the 2020 election were false, but broadcast them anyway. Dominion's latest filing also describes how Paul Ryan, former Republican Speaker of the House and current member of the Fox Corporation Board of Directors, said in his deposition that he had told Murdoch and Murdoch's son, Lachlan, the chief executive officer, quote, Fox News should not be spreading conspiracy theories. He knew what was up. Mr. Ryan suggested that the network pivot and, quote, move on from Donald Trump and stop spouting election lies, unquote. This filing cast Mr. Murdoch as a chairman who was both deeply engaged with his senior leadership about coverage of the election and operating at somewhat uh, of a remove, unwilling to interfere. Asked by Dominion's lawyer, Justin Nelson, whether he could have ordered Fox News to keep Trump lawyers like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani off the air, Murdoch said, I could have, but I didn't. I didn't. The filing on Monday also included a deposition by Viet Din, Fox's chief legal officer. After Hannity told his audience on November 5th, 2020, that it would be impossible to ever know the true, fair, and accurate election results, Mr. Din said he remarked to Lachlan Murdoch, who's the chief executive of Fox News Media, Suzanne Scott, and Fox's top communications officer, Irina Briganti, quote, Hannity is getting awfully close to the line with his commentary and guests tonight, unquote. Yeah. Now, in his deposition, Mr. Din, when asked if Fox executives had an obligation to stop hosts of shows from broadcasting lies, he said yes to prevent and correct known falsehoods. Again, Pete Struck and I will break this filing down in tomorrow's episode of Clean Up on L45, you, wherever you get your pods. And a new grand jury has been impaneled in Fulton County. Now, Anna Bauer from Lawfare tweeted today, the term of the court begins the first Monday in March, which is next week. I spoke to a clerk, she said, who confirmed that the new grand jurors will be sworn in on March 7th. Naturally, that's when I'm on vacation, so we'll see what happens. Looks like the imminent watch actually begins next week. And for my friend Ryan Riley over at NBC, the FBI has arrested a Donald Trump supporter who allegedly stormed the Capitol while wearing the head of a panda costume. Jesse James Rumson was arrested in Florida on Monday, according to court records, and charged with multiple offenses, including assaulting, resisting, or impeding an officer and engaging in physical violence in a restricted building or grounds. Video from January 6th shows the man wearing the panda head entered the Capitol through an emergency fire escape seconds after it was broken open by members of the mob and quickly made his way toward police officers who were trying to keep the rioters back. Online sleuths OSINT, who have helped identify hundreds of Capitol rioters, dubbed the individual Sedition Panda and had surfaced photos of him. The FBI identified Rumson as the man in the panda head because he wore it on and off during the stormy of the Capitol and was caught on video and in photos with his face in full view. That's according to an FBI special agent and an affidavit supporting his arrest. Rumson was allegedly inside the building for fewer than 15 minutes, according to the affidavit. But after exiting the building, he was seen on video encouraging rioters to breach another door, yelling, get a ram! He later assaulted a police officer, grabbing that officer's face shield. That's according to the affidavit. At least 985 people have been arrested in connection with the January 6th riot. That's according to information released this month by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. And from our friend Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, today the Gang of Eight will receive a preliminary briefing from the Department of Justice about the classified documents at issue in the Trump investigation as well as in the Biden investigation and in the Pence case. They will not share the contents of classified material because of the sensitivity of some of the documents and because there's an ongoing criminal investigation. The Gang of Eight includes leadership in the House and Senate, along with the chairs and vice chairs of the House and Senate Intel Committees, namely Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, as well as Mike Turner and Jim Himes of the House Committee on Intelligence, and Mark Warner and Marco Rubio of the Senate Intel Committee. We'll keep you posted. And Twitter fired at least 200 of its few remaining employees on Saturday night, according to three sources familiar with the matter, who talked to the New York Times on Sunday. A fresh round of layoffs eliminated roughly 10% of the company's remaining workforce, which has steadily dwindled down from 7,500 when CEO Elon Musk took over last year. The Times placed the eliminated positions at a far higher number than a Saturday night report from The Information, which said that around 50 staffers had been dismissed. According to the information, the cuts affected employees working to support advertising, as well as members of teams designed to support the main app. The Times added that product managers, data scientists and engineers working on machine learning and site reliability had also been made redundant. And finally, from Greg store at Bloomberg, President Joe Biden faces a formidable obstacle in his bid to slash the student debt of more than 40 million people. This is a U.S. Supreme Court that has repeatedly thwarted his agenda. The administration will defend the plan Tuesday today before the court that has already stopped Biden from blocking evictions during the pandemic and requiring workers to get COVID vaccines or regular tests. The justices have also slashed the Environmental Protection Agency's power to address climate change. Those rulings all decided 6-3 along ideological lines will be key precedents as the court considers Republican contentions that Biden is once again overstepping his authority. The three cases also foreshadow the skepticism The administration is likely to encounter, as it argues, for a potentially $400 billion program that Biden introduced only after failing to persuade Congress to act. I expect this to be overturned, says Ben Barton, a law professor at the University of Tennessee. He said the main question will be how muscular they are in making the decision. The trio of recent cases enshrined what had previously been loosely defined legal concept known as the major questions doctrine. The court's six conservative justices and the executive branch needs clear congressional authorization before taking actions that have sweeping political economic significance. Quote, a decision of such magnitude and consequences rests with Congress itself or an agency acting pursuant to a clear delegation from that representative body. That's Chief Justice John Roberts in the climate change ruling, which preemptively limited the power of Biden's EPA to curb power plant emissions. Roberts said the major questions doctrine was driven both separation of powers principles and practical understanding of legislative intent doesn't sound good for slashing the student debt somehow people will find a way to blame biden with student loans the biden administration says it has a clear authorization through a 2003 law that gives the education secretary special powers when responding to national emergencies the law known as the heroes act says the secretary can waive or modify provisions to ensure that debtors are not placed in a worse position financially because of a national emergency. The Biden administration and its allies say it's doing exactly what the former guy did in 2020, when the Education Department suspended student loan payment obligations after he declared the COVID pandemic a national emergency. Same thing. The Biden administration has extended the pause several times with the latest freeze set up to expire 60 days after the legal fight ends, assuming the court rules by June 30th. Six Republican led states, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas and South Carolina, and two borrowers are challenging the program in separate cases. They contend the major questions doctrine dooms the plan, just like the eviction, vaccine and climate change cases. The challengers say the scale of Biden's plan goes well beyond anything Trump or previous presidents had tried to do under the law. Quote, this part of the HEROES Act had never been used on such a vast scale before, even though by the time Biden tried to use it, the act had been around for 19 years. That's Ilya Soman, law professor at George Mason. The plan would forgive as much as $20,000 in federal loans for certain borrowers, making less than $125,000 a year or $250,000 a year for households. About 26 million people requested forgiveness before the education department stopped accepting applications, and the administration says more than 40 million Americans would be eligible. I don't know. It's not looking good. That's why the Supreme Court is so important. We have to start electing people who are willing to expand the court to 13 justices. All right, everybody. We'll be right back with my good friend Glenn Kirshner from Justice Matters right after this message. Stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. I'm very happy to be joined by my friend today. I haven't seen you in so long. He's the host of Justice Matters, which you can watch on YouTube. He's a former federal prosecutor. Please welcome Glenn Kirshner. Hi, Glenn.
1: Hey, AG. Good to see you again.
0: It's really, really great to see you. I've missed you, my friend. I know we haven't seen each other in quite a while. We've been very busy uh, reporting on all of the justice news. And I wanted to bring you in today because it looks like we're finally, maybe, probably, hopefully, getting to the end of some of these races. Now, you and I have kind of always had our money on Fonnie Willis down there in uh, Fulton County. And it appears as though she's now convened that regular grand jury that she needs to actually bring forth indictments, not the special purpose grand jury that we saw the four person come out and talk about. I was wanting to get your thoughts on how that her, her media tour of this special purpose grand jury for a person may or may not have affected or impacted the prosecution. As a former federal prosecutor, uh, I've heard a lot of my friends who are prosecutors say, this just makes me so angry, but it's not illegal. Talk a little bit about it.
1: Yeah. You know, I think all of the Trump lackeys and flunkies and acolytes can go ahead and drag the fainting couch back into the closet because there is no legal consequence regarding what this Jury forewoman Emily Coors um, said, "You know, it, it's a really strange grand jury process down there in Georgia. I mean, I've prosecuted in military courts and civilian courts and state and federal courts, and I've never seen anything quite like the Georgia grand jury system. It's really unusual in two respects. Usually, there's one grand jury, and that grand jury has the power to issue subpoenas and compel the testimony of reluctant witnesses." and that grand jury has the authority to vote out indictments. Not in Georgia. You need that special purpose grand jury to exercise uh, the subpoena power, and then you have to hand it back off to the regular grand jury, which is the grand jury with the, the power to indict. Now, Emily Kors, 30-year-old young woman, was the person of the special purpose grand jury, And she decided to go on a media tour after the grand jury had concluded its business and issued its report. Most importantly, as Judge McBurney, who is the Georgia state court judge who has supervisory authority over the special grand jury, as he indicated in an interview he gave to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, she had every right to do it. It didn't violate Georgia state law. It didn't violate the rules that Judge McBurney set for the grand jurors about what they could and could not talk about. Frankly, when you heard what Judge McBurney said, Miss Coors could have talked about a whole lot more than she chose to talk about. Now, yes, she is a little quirky and she communicates in an unorthodox way. Guess what, AG? I'm quirky, you're quirky, we're all quirky. And I'll tell you, it really kind of burns my butt that all these people started criticizing this young woman who put her life on hold for eight months to do her civic duty, and sit on a case that was investigating, you know, the crimes of a, of a former president to overturn our democracy. So I'm not going to criticize her for smiling too much when she is giving a media interview, which I'm betting she didn't do every day of her life before she, you know, ended up on this grand jury. So it it means nothing legally. It vests absolutely no right in any defendant who is soon to be indicted to challenge the indictment, to challenge the prosecution. Indeed, it's not even the special grand jury that indicts people. It's the regular grand jury. So this is much ado about nothing, but it was admittedly of keen interest because it's so unusual to see grand jurors talking about what goes on behind those closed doors. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And as opposed to our federal grand jury process, You know, the the courts in Georgia appear to me, at least when I listen to Judge McBurney, always err in the favor of transparency, not secrecy. So I, I think it's a different sort of a culture that that particular system has down there. Now, also, I want to talk to you a little bit about we're all at the end of our rope. We've been at the end of our ropes for a year, at least. And. You know, some of these things that we're learning, particularly the privilege battles with people like Rep Scott Perry and Greg Jacob and Mark Short and now Pence wants to do this speech or debate privilege thing, all of these things. And, you know, we learned from this recent unsealing of Judge Beryl Howell's ruling in December about the Scott Perry case that he slow walked his review of these uh, of these communications from his phone that the DOJ wants. And it added three or four months onto this, you know, onto this probe. And that's just one guy. Right. So. Aside from all of these privilege uh, reviews that have to go through the courts that are slowing gumming up the works because we're talking about presidents and vice presidents. You also recently brought up the point that if you don't stop criming, it's hard to what, to know when to cut bait and end the investigation and start the prosecution phase. Can you talk a little bit about these delays that 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 we're seeing now? I mean, you know, you and I both know Shouldn't have taken five months to set up a special purpose here in grand jury in Fulton County. Shouldn't have taken, uh, you know, six months to start to to bring Wyndham in. To shouldn't have taken a year to bring Wyndham into the DOJ. And though you know those are different kinds of delays, but these are actual procedural delays.
1: Yeah, you know, it looks like Mike Pence and Perry and and the rest of these characters are forever trying to weaponize the delay in the court system, and they've done it very successfully. I mean, you know, they took a play from. The playbook of their their master, Donald Trump. Um, Look at how long he delayed the release of his tax returns. He ran up and down to the Supreme Court twice when they were trying to get some of his financial information in furtherance of the investigation up in New York. And as long as the courts allow nefarious litigants to get away with it, they will keep doing it. And to, to the core question, A.G., of, you know, when do federal prosecutors decide, okay? There is an ongoing, unabated crime wave here. We can investigate each new crime and try to get our arms around all of it and then drop one large, overarching indictment that includes all crimes and all defendants. Or we can do it, frankly, the way we generally do it. We get our hands around one piece of the criming that's gone on we indict it once we have probable cause and we believe we have a reasonable likelihood of success on the merits. That is, we think we have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And we we bring an indictment. And then we continue to investigate in the grand jury and we bring subsequent or what we call superseding indictments. We add charges, we add defendants, we perhaps build a conspiracy case. And then at the end of it all, after we have asked the grand jury to vote out a series of superseding indictments, we dropped the big one that includes everything. I can't for the life of me. What what you can't do, first of all, is investigate forever because it is a never ending crime wave and Mm -hmm. never bring an indictment. That's not workable, but it feels like that's what we're experiencing because we just had reporting by CNN a couple of days ago that there were yet more classified documents that were copied by a Trump aide, uploaded to the cloud and then returned to his office proper at Mar-a-Lago after the FBI search warrant. This is all mind blowing. This feels like more documents crimes that are, are never ending. At some point, federal prosecutors need to make a decision that it's time to indict at least some crimes and at least some criminals. And you know, what, what will forever baffle me, and I really hope that we get to look back and do an autopsy on how this investigation unfolded and unraveled, if it does end up unraveling. It hasn't yet, but justice has clearly been delayed. And try to figure out why is it that we are more than two years out from a violent attack on the Capitol ordered by the president as assisted by lots of co-conspirators and criminal associates in the upper echelons of government, and there hasn't been a single arrest of any of those people. Yes, we're getting after the boots of the insurrection, but they're in a very different category than the command structure, the hierarchy of the insurrection. I can't for the life of me understand why we haven't seen one or two or six or 10 guilty pleas with cooperation working our way up the criminal ladder to the bigger criminal fish. Maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe I'm going to be wowed six months from now when we see, you know, history's largest 371 conspiracy to defraud the government ever contemplated. Maybe, I hope so. But boy, I think we're going to need to take a long, hard look at how we investigate the ruling class criminals because it doesn't seem like we're doing a very effective job.
0: Yeah, and uh, I I hope I'm also uh get that sort of, oh wow, okay, that's what they were doing. And and we could tend we sometimes see those in speaking indictments. Like like the Manafort indictment blew me away. Like, oh, this is what you've been doing for the, the past five months. Okay. You know, and and I think, you know, you talk about we need to do an autopsy when we look back at this. And I think that's one of the good things about having a special counsel here is that that final report, the declinations, all that stuff will help us see where this all sort of was and where it came from. And, you know, speaking of that, and I'm I'm with you on this, I noticed back in December when when uh, Jack Smith sent out all those subpoenas about the Save America Pack and the election defense fund. And it looks like he was looking at fraud and wire fraud, a 20 year sentence and money laundering with the the hiding shell game, uh, you know, and defrauding donors on the big lie. That right there is its own little beautiful, perfect case. Let's get let's go with that. And, and it doesn't you know, that starts the speedy trial clock on those crimes. It doesn't do anything to your other bigger investigation of, you know, fraudulent elector scheme or, you know, whatever. So I'm I'm glad to see he's focused on that and that they have somebody from the old pin from the old uh, public integrity unit on that specifically that fraud, uh, because that is to me seems like a very nice, easy case. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Before I let you go, I want to talk about something I'm really excited about. You have a two part series coming out, and, and I've always wanted to pick your brain about this. You spent decades in in DC uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office working on on these cases and and all of the stuff. I just can't imagine what you know the stuff that you've seen. And you tweeted out like, "I've seen everything," but this case that you're doing this two-part series on is one of the most confounding ones you've ever seen. Talk a little bit about it and, and when it comes out. I'm really excited for this.
1: Yeah, it's called Who Killed Robert Wan? It's a two-part documentary on uh, Peacock and it will um, premiere on March 7th. And it's, it is the most confounding case I ever handled. You know, it's funny, when I retired from the federal government in June of 2018, I kind of thought maybe I'll, I'll be a poor man's dateline. Maybe I'll just do a bunch of you know crime shows about the literally hundreds of murder cases and the RICO cases that I was involved in. And then I ended up doing two, three, four of those shows and realized one, how much work it was, and two, uh, it felt a little bit more like entertainment than like something that had real societal value. And the Mueller investigation was a thing, so I kind of ended up in the legal analyst space more than the Dateline space. But this case, the murder of Robert Wan, I I don't want to say I have a great wife, but what I will say is I don't necessarily remember the wins. I remember two things about the murder cases I, I handled. I remember the losses and I remember the cold cases that I just wasn't able to solve. And the cold case piece of it is what inspired me when I retired to put pen to paper and draft up very roughly speaking what became the Homicide Victims Families Rights Act. I worked together with Representative Swalwell's legislative director for years, and we made it a reality, and President Biden signed it into law in August. So as I tell my students at GW, if this gutter kid from Jersey can have an impact on federal legislation, anybody can. So um, that, and then it's the case, so the, the Robert Wan case, which I could never figure out who killed Robert Wan. Bizarre case, we could talk about it for six hours, AG. I know we don't have that kind of time, but uh, a very, a, a wonderful, very accomplished young lawyer named Robert Wan, who was general counsel over at Radio Free Asia. He had worked at Covington, a high powered law firm, transitioned over to the job as general counsel at Radio Free Asia. And as a matter of convenience, he asked if he could spend the night at a friend's house those, that friend was Joe Price, himself a law firm partner back then. They had gone to William & Mary Law School together. And uh, Joe Price lived with two other men. They were all involved in a, a relationship together in a very high-end, well-appointed, beautiful home on Swan Street in northwest Washington, D.C. Robert had to meet the night shift over at Radio Free Asia and he had to be there at like four in the morning. So as a matter of work convenience, he asked if he could stay at his friend's house, Joe Price. Mm-hmm. And at about eleven o'clock, the the night Robert was killed, the nine one one call is placed by Victor Zaborski, one of the other residents of the house. And he says, um, "Our friend is dead in our bed. Please send an dead in our guest room. Please send an ambulance. By the way, we think the intruder has one of our knives." Okay. I've listened to a lot of 911 calls. That's not the way they ordinarily Mm -hmm. go. That call sent me on a uh, five, six year odyssey. Because when the police, the EMS workers arrived, Robert Wan is laid out in a guest bed on the second floor of this townhome, ramrod straight, lying on top of covers that are folded down at a perfect 45 degree angle. He has three gaping torso wounds, knife wounds, that the medical examiner testified were almost surgical slit-like defects. They were so perfect. He had inexplicable needle puncture marks on his neck and elsewhere on his body. And, A.G., this is the mind-blowing part. So much of it is mind-blowing. These three stab wounds to Robert's torso, one went through nothing but soft tissue and organ, Second went through nothing but soft tissue and organ. The third was driven directly through his sternum, which as my expert forensic pathologist testified, it's like trying to um, sh- trying to uh, run a dull knife through the tread of a truck tire. It's very difficult to do. And yet these three wounds were perfectly identical in width, depth, and orientation. Then there was a knife that was left gingerly placed on the nightstand that had some blood smeared on it wasn't the, the murder weapon. I mean, and it goes on and on. And when the police sit these three guys down, their names are Joe Price, Victor Zaborsky, and Dylan Ward, and ask them, what the heck just happened in your guest room? They played the three monkeys card, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. And I then had to try to unravel what had happened mm-hmm. to Robert Juan. I never could develop enough evidence to prosecute anybody for the murder. And, and frankly, the Department of Justice was not wild about me bringing charges against anybody. I said, yeah, I don't care. You can either fire me or you can give me permission to bring a conspiracy case trying to prove that they conspired to obstruct justice and tamper with evidence. So I tried them for the coverup because I couldn't quite figure out who killed Robert Juan. The best news is, and this is all I don't. I don't want to ruin too much about it. There will be a tip line that goes directly to the Metropolitan uh, Police Department homicide detective who is still there and still determined to answer the question, who killed Robert Juan? So I will beg and plead and implore the public to please drop a dime, make a call if you know anything, because these three guys, I'm quite sure, have run their mouths since 2006 when Robert turned up dead in their guest room.
0: Wow. I, I can't wait to watch this. And I think it's so fascinating that, um, you know, that you went after the conspiracy to cover it up and obstruct justice. How, the, how important that is, especially when we're talking about some of the crimes that we're talking about uh, with respect to the attack on the Capitol and trying to overthrow our government. And the documents case, uh, all of these have obstruction considerations and, and how important that is. If you don't have we saw it in the Mueller report, which sits up behind me on my shelf where we couldn't quite get the evidence for conspiracy in a lot of these cases. But we definitely had evidence of obstruction of justice. So. That is so fascinating. It, it, uh, March 7th, it's a two-parter and it comes out on Peacock. Is, it, is Do I get to see both at once? Can I binge it or is it like one night?
1: I am not sure of the release schedule. I think they may be releasing it one after another or maybe one on the 7th and the second episode on the 8th. I'm not sure.
0: Okay, cool. Well, I'm definitely, I'll be there on March 7th on Peacock. Thank you so much. Everybody check out Justice Matters on YouTube. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next Justice Gathering, my friend, uh, Glenn Kirshner.
1: Great chatting with you, AG.
0: Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone! <laughs> Good news. Good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, if you want to tell me what your Fox viewing family members and friends are saying about the proof that Fox News lied to everybody about election fraud, or if you want to send in a shout out to somebody you love or pod pet photos, or if you don't have a pet, you can send in an adoptable pet in your area. We can play What the Mutt. Anything you want to send, you can send to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. First up, from Marguerite. Marguerite says, Correction. I believe it's not accurate to say the Fulton County DA Fannie Willis said that indictments were imminent. What she said during the hearing was that charging decisions are imminent. Once she makes her charging decisions, then she must present the evidence to a regular grand jury. Grand juries are seated every other month in Georgia and sit for two months. There's a new one starting in March, so actual indictments might not come till the end of April. Thank you, Marguerite. I addressed that a little bit at the top of the hour. Charging decisions. Yes, but she also said during that hearing that there would be multiple trials. So I was kind of inferring, but yes, very true. Thank you for that correction. Next up, just a rabid listener from Boston, pronouns he and him. Hello, from a beanstalker from Beantown. Excellent. <laughs> Daily listener who chooses to wait until morning to listen to the feed when I could do it the night before. Just wouldn't feel right if I didn't wait. For you, a picture of the boys, Axel on the left, three years, and his baby brother, Brutus, two years old, chilling after running outside all morning. Thank you for that and a stalker from Beantown. I love it. Next up from Anonymous, pronoun she and her. Hi, Beans fam. I wanted to share some personal good news. I have recently moved to Washington from Montana and have made some major life changes. I've been in graduate school since 2019, working toward my master's degree in geoscience. Very cool. In 2020, I moved into a studio, tiny house to live alone during the height of the pandemic. This led to extreme loneliness in a place where I had no family and few friends. Graduate school is isolating. But COVID-19 brought on a new layer I wasn't mentally prepared for. I turned to alcohol and binge drinking alone in my house to soothe being alone. This caused me to gain weight, which triggered a lifelong battle I've had with disordered eating. Not eating enough and heavy drinking caused my iron levels in my body to tank, and I was unable to have a job or work on my degree for about a year. After starting to eat better, I found the strength to move out of Montana and chose Bellingham, Washington as a place to get healthy and finish my thesis. It took a while to find a good space to live, but I ended up finding a fantastic space for my dog and I with amazing landlords. I'm proud to report that for the past three weeks, I've met my mindful drinking goal of being completely sober three to four days a week. I'm aiming for five sober days this week. There's still a lot of work to be done. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen instantly. Like the wheels of justice and the wheels of self-care and breaking bad habits and addictions turn uncomfortably slowly. I've started consistently working on my thesis, applied for part time jobs, and cook fresh, healthy meals every day. I've also been reaching out to more friends and have had a consistent yoga practice since moving. Dude, yoga works wonders. The future looks bright, and I have my spark for life back. For pet tax, I present Pete, an eight year old rescue dog from Montana. I got him when he was around five. He's the best adventure partner I've ever had. He was part of a prisoner training program and lived in a prison for a few years of his life. This plus being a stray multiple times has made him have a few quirks, but he's helping me with mine, so I help him with his. I can't quite swing a doggy DNA test, so consider what your what the mut guesses to be one hundred percent correct. Those are my favorite kind. Thank you for the hard work all the MSW media team does. I've been a listener since What was the only podcast on the network. It's been an amazing following you and the amazing podcasts that are now with this network. What an incredible story, Anonymous. Well done. You're just a warrior. And look at this baby. <gasps> oh, what a beautiful dog. Uh I'm gonna guess. Oh, there it uh, this is just okay. Uh I'm gonna say Australian sheepdog. Um or excuse me, Australian shepherd. Uh maybe a cattle dog in there somewhere with the markings. Little lab. Of course, some chow chow. Maybe, maybe an Eskimo dog. Just a beautiful puppers. Oh, look at that. Looking out over the water. What a sweet baby. Hi, Pete. Thank you for sending that in. Thank you so much. And well done. That loneliness was hard. Oh, gosh. Yeah, thank you. And I have to say yoga has saved my life more than once. So well done. Well done. All right, next up from anonymous pronoun she and her. My grand dog. Shared with permission from my conspiracy-possessed son. Socks was rescued as a pup and still has that energy, even though he has multiple severe medical issues. Twelve and going strong. Lives with four cats and a MAGA and his sweet (laughs) fiancé. Thank you for keeping me sane in MAGAville, Florida. Look at this beautiful baby. Tell secrets to the dog, and hopefully the dog will tell the MAGA. What a sweetheart. So cute. Oh, we found one special toe gene hindu <laughs> claws discovered in western breeds so cute. Oh, there's breed answers. Oh, okay, let me guess. Um uh, uh let's see. I can't tell how big this dog is. So, I'm going to say This looks like kind of a smaller dog. So maybe there, maybe I see some chihuahua and some chow and uh oh goodness. Maybe a, what's that one Basenji? Is that the Barkless dog? Kind of looks like that a little bit. Let's see what we got. We've got Pomeranian, Pekingese, Eskimo, Shih Tzu, and Count. I got zero. Oh wait, Chihuahua, 19% Chihuahua. Oh, and there's also Collie, German Shepherd, Australian Cattle Dog, Border Collie, Chow Chow. All right, I got two. Malamute, and a Fijian street dog. Oh, there's street dog breeds now in dog DNA. Incredible. That is a lot. What a sweetheart. Thank you so much for sending that in. That was fun. Next up from Tom in Toronto. I discovered your show a few weeks ago. Been hooked ever since. AG and DG got an eye full of manatees mating. I had to pull my cart over in Costco, listen again, and try not to burst a blood vessel, suppressing my laughter. (laughs) Only one complaint. Because of the jingle that you play before the commercial break, I go around singing, after these messages, we'll be right back. And I don't seem to have the ability to get the darn thing out of my head. So thanks for that, Beans Queens. (laughs) Tom in Toronto, you're welcome. That's an old thing that we used to happen on Saturday morning cartoons on CBS. I remembered it and I wanted to use it in the show. So it is quite an earworm. You're right. And then let's see. Finally, we've got one from Anne, Pronoun: she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. Since Mike Pence has been getting a lot of mentions on the show these days, I thought I'd share a conversation I had with my kiddo around 2017 when he was five. I had discovered that kiddo thought that then vice president's last name was Pants, Mike Pants. So I very carefully worked with him. No, no. Peh. Peh. Pants. By the end of the conversation, my child had carefully updated his pronunciation, diligently switched to that short E, but now is calling him Mike Pencil. Good thing I was able to straighten that out for him. (laughs) That reminds me of my big fat Greek wedding. bunt, bunt, bunt. Oh, it's a cake. I know. And then she puts the flower pot. I fixed it. There's a hole in this cake. Mike Pencil. I like pants, my pants. That's pretty good. Uh, thank you for that submission, Anne. And thanks for all of your submissions. These were incredible. And uh, well done up there in Washington. Keep it going. We're here for you. Anytime you want to send in anything, just to just to vent or rant or talk or share, we're here for you. And we're here for everybody. You can send in whatever you want by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Thanks to my friend, Glenn Kirshner. And look for that March 7th debut of his two-part documentary series on Peacock. It's going to be so good. Uh, and we appreciate him coming in here and definitely check out Justice Matters. All right, everybody, I'll be back tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Take care of each other. Went out of order there. Vote Blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been A.G. and them's The Beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg.